Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Ogletree Deacons podcast. My name is Kevin Bland, and I'm a shareholder in our Orange County office. Here with me today is Karen Tynan, a shareholder from our Sacramento office. We're talking about the California COVID prevention non-emergency standard today. So, Karen, what's going on with this so-called permanent regulation? (laughs) I know I hate the word permanent, and so uh, the word non-emergency is used, but it makes quite a mouthful for COVID prevention non-emergency standard, right? (laughs) So in February of 2023, the non-emergency standard took effect and is in effect until the end of 2024, unless something crazy happens, right? We could have, if there was, you know, another wave or something, maybe there'd be orders from the governor, we don't know. But for California employers, planning for the non-emergency standard to be in effect for 2023 and 2024, to implement that standard, have your processes, your records and everything, planning for those two years is what needs to happen. All right, and so, in that planning what are the biggest changes that occurred moving from the emergency standard the ets people referred to it as it was in effect uh, last year versus what's currently in effect as the non-emergency quasi-permanent covid standard (laughs) right we had a couple of different versions of emergency standards right beginning the summer of 2020 and had some permutations and combinations in those. Now with this standard, probably the biggest relief to California employers is no more exclusion pay. Don't you, don't you agree with that, Kev? Oh, oh, absolutely. And boy, talk about a fight. <laughs> right. At, at the behind board to the get scenes. That, yeah. Right. Behind the scenes, there was a tremendous push from labor and other advocates. And there were Uh, people on the Cal OSHA standards boards who were saying, well, we need exclusion pay. And it was a a real tussle back room and front room, what you say to get exclusion pay out of the reg. Absolutely. Uh, I think the saving grace there is that whenever they gave us the initial draft that didn't have it in there, so then the fight was for them to try to get it back in there. And so that kind of, I think, helped the the fight. But any other big changes that you think are noteworthy? Yes. So... As employers are transitioning from that emergency standard to the non-emergency standard, there have been some pretty substantial changes in the regulation. And so I want to talk a little bit about those changes. So we had no exclusion pay, close contact definition changed. We had been used to for two and a half years doing the I call it the 61524, right? right? We were used to asking people, were you within six feet for 15 minutes, right, of, of a COVID case? And close contact definition changed. And there's also a caveat that that close contact definition could be changed again by CDPH. Yeah. So 
the close contact, you can use the six feet, 15 minutes, 24 hours for the larger air spaces, the over 400,000 cubic feet. But for just regular offices, small manufacturing, if people are in the same airspace, in the same office area, even if they're not within six feet, they can count as a close contact. That's a, a really big change that I think it was difficult for employers because they had spent so much time and had kind of perfected the 615-24. And then when close contacts was expanded, it, it was just hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we had clients that had invested in machines that where you could stand in front of it and do do the green and red circle so people could judge where six foot was and so they had it they had it down you're absolutely right i think that was a big one but the other change with close contact karen if you can explain what do you do now with a close contact versus what you did before well remember for a while in the other versions you just had to immediately exclude people right the the non-emergency standard doesn't reference vaccinations or anything like that. And there's not that level of exclusion. You still have to contact trace and you're still looking back the two days, but it's it's not nearly as burdensome and it defaults to the CDPH instructions for what they say for exclusion, returning to work and wearing masks. We do have that kind of almost break glass mechanism in this re regulation where the CDPH can issue an order and then that order becomes incorporated, which is a little odd, Kevin, right. because we don't have that in any other kind of regulations where you have a Title VIII regulation that says, oh, and by the way, if this other state agency makes a pronouncement the pronouncement is what tracks. Right. The only small saving grace in there, wouldn't you say, Karen, is they, they do specifically say, I think, order or regulation, not just run-of-the-mill advice. Yes. So it has to be an order that has to be signed. So it can't just be those guidance updates. So so that is a, a good caveat. And other changes that uh, we should think about, There's there's less direction around face coverings. Now, certainly they have to be provided to employees if the employees want them, but the non-emergency standard really gets away from social distancing and face covering requirements that were used at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's more, the regulation is more akin to an IIPP regulation where employers are identifying hazards, addressing the hazards, and utilizing their safety processes versus kind of a, a more list of requirements. So you, you see what I mean, Kevin, yeah. about it's like the IIPP, yeah. IIPP rules? Yeah, it, is, it, it kind of reverted back, which you and I both were from the very beginning say, we already have a COVID reg, it's the IIPP. Figure out what your hazard is in your workplace and move on from there. But of course, that, didn't, that argument didn't prevail, clearly. But, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, um, what about the, and there's the barriers. I think I just, it's funny, right. our Orange County office, I just saw them taking our barriers down yesterday. <laughs> right. But, but uh, so I figure it's okay to take them down now in certain circumstances. Right. The, their barrier requirements are no longer there. I think what some employers are continuing to do is take a, I, I'd call it kind of a holistic approach 
and if workers are more comfortable with barriers, if they're seeing a lot of clients or customers in a day, like in a grocery store or something, some barriers are still remaining, but it's not a requirement. And it's more of an engineering control right. that may choose to be used, just like screening, right? There's a lot of flexibility around screening. There's no particular screening requirement moving forward. But for many employers, reminding employees, hey, don't come to work sick. You need to self-screen at home. That's a reasonable part of any COVID prevention plan. Right, exactly, exactly. And I, I, I guess the ones that they already invested in the barriers, they're hanging there. Why not, leave, why not them? leave them, right? Let's move on a little bit to another topic that comes up a lot in questions that we get all the time, training. So is training required? Did do Does the old training still work? What's going on with training? So training became a much more loosely worded part of the regulation. Remember with the non with the emergency standards before the the non-emergency standards. (laughs) Easy for you to say. (laughs) Those standards had very particular training requirements and subjects. Now the regulation says you have to train on COVID. So some employers have continued to use the same subjects. Some have kind of cut back, but you, you have to have the COVID training that applies to your workplace. So if you are in a workplace where you're having customers and clients come in, uh, training around uh, what you should do when the general public is there, you know, might be more important than say a construction site, training about COVID. Um, So that uh, high level from the previous regulation of what I would call micromanaging training for employers is gone. Now it still needs to be effective. It still needs to be implemented. Uh, but y- you need to customize it and and use it for 2023 and 2024 under the regulation. And, and speaking of that um, and training too, what's one thing that uh, I saw and I wanted to kind of get if you were seeing the same thing, documenting that training, it's no different really than other document. What do they have to do to make sure that they have that documented, Karen? Well, you're smiling, Kevin, because, you know, we've had these fights in some cases where, maybe a training document didn't have the actual name of the trainer on it, right? Because it was something delivered in a PowerPoint remotely. So in California, if you are going to prove that you have trained employees, you need to have the date they were trained, the subject matter, the training, and the employee attendees documented. And you really should keep that PowerPoint so that you can show how how the materials were delivered. If it's a PowerPoint, if it's a test, written materials, videos, keeping those, but making sure that you have memorialized in writing those four points. I do think, and maybe we can weave this in, Kevin, the the fervor for COVID inspections has, has waned a bit, but if there are trends with, you know, more outbreaks or if you have a trend with like we did with Omicron where or where it's coming back, I think we'd see them go up. But right now we're, we're not seeing as much. So so I want to be fair and say that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think to your point, when we see flu season roll around again, there's probably when we'll see COVID uh, right. enforcement season roll around again. I agree with you on that. What about uh, whether dealing with it, like let's say you end up with 
four COVID cases in your workplace. Uh, does that trigger anything or what happens with that or three or two or how right. does that work? So we still have outbreak regulations in our non-emergency standard. They're a little more streamlined and you have to do your contact tracing and you have to make testing available at no cost to employees and you have to weekly test until you get out of outbreak. I've always said over the last few years in working with clients, it's easy to get into outbreak. It is difficult to get out of outbreak because when you're doing weekly testing and there's a lot of community spread, you're just going to have people testing positive because, you know, they have it in their home or they got it at the grocery store or the movie theater. And so outbreak, when once you end up implementing that weekly testing, it's just a tough cycle to get out of. I know people use different methods. I think Kevin and I, we've seen different spreadsheets, right? Or some people have software that they use for employee management where they're tracking close contacts, when people are working, also when people are tested, when the results come in. And the 14 days is a rolling 14 days. And then once you are out of your 14 days and down, let's just talk about just the regular multiple case outbreak, if you can get down to just one case in the 14 days, you're out of outbreak. That was a bit of a change in the regulation. But when you're doing that testing, and let's say you have a workforce of 50, 60, 70 people, it's just so easy to still have people testing positive. Right. And, and whenever you do that test, Karen, and you do your contact tracing of that testing, if it appears that one was not born from the workplace, it still counts against you, doesn't it, or not? Right, right, yeah. it does. And and that's been hard for California employers that if someone tests positive in the workplace and they got it through community spread, it still counts as an outbreak. And it feels a bit unfair. It's felt unfair for two and a half years, three years. But the, it doesn't matter whether the COVID case is work-related or whether you don't know where the person got it or if the person is sure they got it in community spread, you're still in outbreak, you're still paying for testing. That weekly testing uh, for some employers, you know, it can be so burdensome because maybe they have to get the van to come out to test everyone all at once. Or maybe they're giving out, you know, 70 home tests that people are going into the bathroom and taking. Right. And if you see community spread going up, Maybe you up your reminders to people. You, you give everybody a little refresher training about sanitizing your hands, or, or maybe you remind people that they can request N95s. So I think there are some ways to, if you see an outbreak on the horizon or you're at one or two cases and you, you're concerned about community spread, don't just think about, oh, well, who do I have to report to or is the public health department coming out? Uh, thinking about ways to to minimize employees getting COVID because no matter what, if you have the outbreak, it's going to be considered a workplace outbreak. Yeah, good point. And I think I'd add another thing that I've seen people get into outbreak that they shouldn't necessarily be in because of the upfront calculation, right? Were they there during the contagion period? You have three people on Monday that right. call with COVID, but only one of them was actually at 
work during the contagion period. Right, right? the two days before they yeah. tested positive. And so sometimes people have said, oh, well, we've got three positives. Well, well, let's hold on here. Let's look at when they were in the workplace. Let's, let's look at when they were symptomatic. Because sometimes, especially like those Monday phone calls that say, oh, I, I think I have COVID this morning. Well, if they, if they hadn't been in the workplace since Friday and they weren't symptomatic on Friday, they may not be count towards your outbreak. They may not be a COVID case. And so that, that's what I'm talking about with having a spreadsheet to track it. And I, I know it takes resources for HR people and for safety professionals to, to manage these outbreaks. It's one of the most burdensome areas of the regulation, but it, it certainly is one that I, I, I am glad we've been able to, to take a little bit of a dive into it. Yeah, no, for sure. That's where we've seen this. And oh, one last question on outbreaks. Do you have to report an outbreak anywhere? Only the major one to Cal OSHA Perfect. under the regulation. Now, be careful because sometimes local health departments will have something on their website that says, please report, you know, COVID cases. So you also need to check for the county that you're in. And just like any regular COVID case in the workplace in outbreaks, you are going to exclude those COVID cases and take a look at the CDPH requirements for exclusion. Last thing here, let's talk a little bit about the enforcement. I told you touched on it, enforcement activity and what we see when there is enforcement activity around uh, the COVID uh, regulation. Mostly I'm seeing any COVID enforcement or inspections are related to complaints. And it's when an employee sends in a complaint and says, oh, you know, somebody's coming to work sick, my employer's not excluding them, or some other kind of complaint like that. And then we know Cal OSHA has to either send out the inspector or send the letter. So that's what I'm seeing with enforcement in 2023. I do think that we see some Cal OSHA resources towards having a general industry aerosol transmissible disease standard. I know you've been involved with that at the standards board, Kevin. It's, it's not even something that's you, you know on the doorstep right now, but many advocates, labor advocates, other people in the state really are pushing towards a general industry aerosol transmissible disease standard. Yeah, and then we'll keep keep an eye on that and be ready because one of the big things they want back is what? Exclusion pay. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, uh, labor advocates are, are looking for that. And uh, as, as a closing comment here, I think that California employers need to continue to be vigilant in their record keeping, their OSHA 300 logs. If a COVID case is work-related, sometimes employers have been over-recording and under-recording, and it's hard to get it just right, but being vigilant with your 300 logs, that's that's my closing practice pointer, Kev. Good point. All good points, Karen. Thanks for listening to Karen and I. Uh, Look for our blog articles on ogletree.com and have a great, safe day. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. 
please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.